Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode's called A Critical Review of Mexico's Security Policy. Good evening, everyone. Good morning, everyone, depending on where you're joining us from. Uh, welcome to this session here in the 24-hour uh, conference on Mexico's security policy. And so um, if our, I think our panelists, I mean, you can do it as I announce you <laughs> so if you're coming on stage, um, but my name is Zara Snap uh, from Instituto Ria in Mexico, and we're an organization that does advocacy and research on drug policies around a peace-building social justice and development framework. And I'm really excited about the panel that we're going to have today because uh, we were proposing this at Institutoria, and I'm so glad that it's actually happening. So I want to thank the conference for accepting it, and I'm going to start introducing our panelists so we can get right into it. So first, we have Luis Daniel Santiago. He is an analyst at, um, at Instituto Ria, and he's currently, and also has uh, other work doing political analysis and electoral uh, strategizing. And so right now he's in Colombia working on a campaign there. So, so he's joining us from Bogota. Welcome. Um, then we have Don Marie Paley, who is from the Universidad Autónoma de Puebla. She's a doctor, Dr. Don, also the author of Drug War Capitalism and Neoliberal War, one of my, basically I just wanted to bring together people I admire so that we can have a nice, have an interesting conversation. So thank you, Don, for being here today. And finally, Osvaldo Zavala, who's a professor of Latin American literature and culture at City University of New York, and also the author of Cartels Don't Exist. I recommend all of these books um, and all, all of these authors. So what we're going to do uh, during this session is there will be first, uh, Luis Daniel is going to speak for a few minutes, for five to seven minutes, then Don, and finally Osvaldo. And, you know, we really wanted to bring up this session because we want it to be a bit of a critique on both um, what's going on in Mexico and also a questioning, you know, kind of this examining of have we actually changed in strategy? Has strategy, military, militarized strategy around security, has it uh, transformed in the last three years, which have been under uh, current president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador? Um, what are we witnessing? What, do we, what can we learn from the past? Um, and then what do we think about the future? And, um, and also just a bit to explore and question a bit our ideas around um, what is organized crime, you know? How, how are we, are we homogenizing a group that maybe needs to be more uh, diversified in our, in our undertaking of, of our studies around groups uh, that both interact and that are form part of many of the communities uh, obviously here in Mexico. So we're gonna, we're gonna be exploring all of that tonight. We have an hour, um, we're starting right on time. And um, so I'm gonna pass the floor to, pass the, the microphone to Luis Daniel Santiago to start. Thank you, welcome. Thank you, Sara. Hello everyone, my name is Luis, Luis Daniel Santiago. I'm from Mexico City, currently living in Bogota, Colombia. I'm a communications consultant and data analyst. 
And uh, as Sara said, we're going to get dive into what is going on towards the fight of organized crime in regarding cartels and, and drug trafficking organizations. And right now I'm going to set the context towards the, the strategy that has been implemented in Mexico throughout the, the better part of 15 years. And the and how is it become how how has it became the the main strategy towards fighting organized crime? That it's called the, the kingpin strategy in Mexico. Why it failed and why even though it has been failing, it's still being implemented. So a bit of context. The main objective of the so-called kingpin strategy or the kingpin approach towards organized crime is in the criminal, not on the crime itself. It's to attack the perpetrator, not attacking the causes that leads a person to engage in criminal activity. Now, this strategy has been the paradigm that has been dictated and promoted and supported by the US through organizations such as the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, as its main policy towards combating drug trafficking organizations. And it has been implemented in multiple Latin American countries, not just in Mexico. And even though its implementation in Mexico began as early as 1997, it was in late 2006 and early 2007 that this approach really gained like sort of a, a big momentum and a, and a leading role in Mexico's own security policy. It was that the new, the then newly elected president of Mexico, Calderón, began uh, chose to, as a foreign policy and as a security policy to have a close relationship with the United States in security matters, much like uh, also then president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe, who also engaged in a close relationship with the Bush administration towards fighting uh, the guerrilla groups such, such as FARC and ELN here in Colombia. And this proximity really facilitated the negotiation of multiple year deals and agreements such as the Merida Initiative, through which the US funneled significant means and resources for the Mexican government to be used in fighting the drug trafficking organizations. And many of, of, of these means and resources came in the, in the form of military assistance, of money, on, or in equipment, but also it came in the form of defining or having an influence in the definition of which were the targets that were going to be targeted, sorry for using the same word, by the Mexican forces, and also in applying pressure in the in Mexican judicial branch so that to facilitate the extradition of priority targets to be tried on American soil. And now there's substantial evidence right now that shows that the kingpin strategy not only has not been a factor in reducing the power of these criminal enterprises, but has rather enabled violence and fostered the creation of new smaller groups. And here's the tricky part. In spite of this same strategy is still producing certain metrics that may show that the strategy itself is a success. Since it takes into account certain metrics such as the amount of lieutenants and kingpins that are captured, it can certainly be, uh, be seen as a success. Both uh, former president Felipe Calderón and his successor, Enrique Peña Nieto, we're talking about here uh, of the two presidents that governed Mexico from 2006 to 2018, 
They both achieved tangible goals set through this strategy, despite the fact that it had little to no effect on improving the security situation in the country. And I can throw you a lot of metrics and a lot of data that show that this is a, a failure, but the most, the one that it's most, most clear and most, uh, most transparent is the fact that between 2006 and 2018 alone, these two periods of time in which this strategy has been really implemented, Mexico has reported over a quarter million of homicides. I mean, which, I mean, there, there's no clearer fact than that. And even though the then new president of Mexico in 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador, current president of Mexico, had been a fierce critic of this strategy and promised a change of policy once he got into office, three years into his administration, actually, he today marks the third anniversary that his administration began. There is clear evidence that this strategy is still being implemented and it is still not producing any results in reducing the level of violence or the reach of the drug trafficking organizations. And one may ask, why is this still being implemented even though there's substantial evidence that it doesn't work? Because it's an easy sell. Politically speaking, it's, it's easier to explain in simple metrics uh, a strategy or the implementation of, of a strategy through the kingpin strategy because you are measuring in your success or failure based on the, the amount of people you capture, tenant, lieutenants and kingpins, of the money that you may capture uh, through money laundering or, or other activities. But, and, and that's an easy sell politically speaking, and it, it can generate headlines. I mean, uh, many of us can remember these uh, splashy headlines on, used by the Mexican military and the Mexican security forces of they grabbing a kingpin or a lieutenant with a whole bunch of drugs and money and arms. And it, it's a tangible way to show that they are working. Even though there's, there is no sign that this actually works and actually the, the evidence is quite the contrary. And the, the, the sad part of it is that one of the most fierce critics of these strategies is, is going down, down the same lane, you know, implementing the, the same key policy that he was right on the spot criticizing his predecessors about doing this. And uh, the tragic part is that the, there are huge parts of Mexico that have been really affected by, by, these, by the side effects of uh, using like a sword to take down the, the head of uh, a criminal enterprise and the, the, the cells that it generates throughout this approach. And I yield the rest of my time. Yeah, not, not the problem. Um, yeah, and really you give us a perfect segue into, um, you bring up a lot of points that I, I hope I can come back to in the questions around indicators around the Medida Initiative. I'm going to pass. Um, I'm going to pass the proverbial microphone to Dawn, who's going to speak a bit about, I think, about the history of militarization in Mexico, and she's also done a lot of work on on búsqueda, no, on the search for people who are disappeared. So I'm sure she'll comment on that as well. Thank you, Dawn. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sara, and thanks for everyone who's uh, here with us. Um, so I actually just have a, a really short list of bullet points of things that came into my mind is important to share um, 
in this five minutes, right? So it's very sort of top line. Um, but I want to start just by saying that I think it's really important to analyze organized crime, not as something that's exceptional or something that's occurring outside of states or capitalism. Um, we actually need interdisciplinary approaches that ask how organized crime interacts with and impacts um, nation state and global capital, as well as social re reproduction and social movements. So coming to, uh, you know, even just the idea of being part of a conference on organized crime makes me cringe a little bit, um, especially when the focus uh, really is on this notion of criminal groups and not on states and the economic system within which we're living. Because I think um, any analysis um, that we, that we do on organized crime that does not situate it within the context of actually existing capitalism that does not analyze political power and how it's being used by who will always produce analysis that are very partial and it will lead to proposals that are band-aid solutions or non-solutions um, to violence and to the drug trade. I also just wanted to, I guess as a way of illustrating um, this, what I consider this urgent need to think about organized crime as intricately linked with uh, the state and capitalism. Um, I wanted to just touch on the capture of Genaro Garcia Luna uh, in 2018 and uh, General Salvador Cienfuegos in 2020 in the U.S. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, Garcia Luna was the head of the federal police in Mexico. He was Felipe Calderón's uh, head of public security. And he was accused of trafficking in collaboration with the Sinaloa cartel. He's currently in prison in the United States. And Cienfuegos uh, was the head of the Army and the Air Force in Mexico during Peña Nieto's uh, administration. He was a secretary of defense um, and he was arrested last year. Um, he's now a free man here in Mexico. So I think these events, the capture of these two men is often presented as Garcia Luna and Cienfuegos are working for organized crime. But in fact, we don't necessarily have the empirical evidence to prove that, just like many, many, many of the things that we tend to take for granted or that are part of sort of a received wisdom about organized crime. And I think the question that we need to ask is, is it possible that organized crime was working for them, right? And taking that question seriously is really urgent. Um, and it's, it's a very complex task, obviously, but that kind of uh, interrogation of the relationship between these two men who were the head of security apparatus in Mexico during this intense drug war um, that has been so tragic for so many hundreds of thousands of families, um, we need really thinking about it seriously is going to force us um, to rethink the whole war on drugs. And I think that's, that's where we need to go right now in terms of our analysis and, and changing the discourse. Um, finally, I just wanted to say, and this echoes a little bit um, what Luis Daniel was saying, is that the Mexican Army and Marines are still heavily involved in the war on drugs to this day. I'm going to quote from a new article um, by uh, Rangel Trevino, which is from 2021. Um, and he says, between 2006 and 2020, each new administration has deployed a new discourse to make the war on drugs the use of military for police operations, and the sustained growth in the homicide rate more acceptable. 
The rhetoric may change, but the strategy to deal with the illicit drug markets remains without significant changes in practice. And to close, I just want to um, share my concern, my deep concern with the Mexican army's increasing or participation in civilian life, um, from the control of ports to the building and operating of priority infrastructure projects. And particularly in this context in which um, the armed forces are being deployed in the streets throughout the country at record levels. Um, so this is something that I think we also need to think about within the context of understanding organized crime and the war on drugs. Thank you. Thank you, Don. That's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation. And I wanted to have it within as soon as the, the, um, the email came about it. Uh, this is a space to question what we've been um, to question how this is even being presented. No, how were we as part of as academics, as professors, as journalists, as um, as civil society, how it's also our duty to question what's being you know laid out as if it was a fact. And we'll get more into that, um, I'm sure, after Oswaldo and the point about the rhetoric and the official discourse. I think leads us perfectly into um, Oswaldo. Muchas gracias por estar. Thank you. Thank you, Sara, for organizing the panel. A pleasure to be here with, with all these colleagues. Um, I'll read a brief paper and then I guess we'll move on to the discussion. Uh, the Mexican and the, and the US governments announced on September 27th, the, the so-called Bicentennial Framework for Security, Public Health and Safe Communities, as they named it, a binational agreement claiming to be designed primarily to protect the health and safety of our citizens, I'm quoting from the document, and promote the development of the most vulnerable communities in both countries, prevent criminal organizations from harming our countries, and pursue and bring criminals to justice. This agreement, in my opinion, follows the Lopez Obrador um, government's move uh, to revise its own national security law that resulted, as we know, in a closer monitoring of DA agents in Mexico, spending, uh, suspending and you know, reframing the Merida Initiative and demanding stricter gun regulation uh, in the US to curtail the contraband of weapons into Mexico, this, you know, discussions that I think we're all aware of. Uh, the, the Bicentennial Agreement seems, uh, at, at least on the surface, like a complacent response on the part of the US to accept the implied criticism on the otherwise disastrous and of course even criminal anti-drug anti policy that led Mexico into a violent era of militarization that is yet to end. On the other hand, it seems to reinstate, as Don and, and, and Daniel have suggested, the most typical securitarian aspects of the war on, against drugs, namely to disrupt transnational criminal organizations or TCOs, as the pseudo-technical name uh, is usually circulated um, in official institutions uh, in, instead of uh, the more vulgar cartels. And I would like to dwell in this contradiction. I am always intrigued by the rhetoric uh, of the drug war in such agreements. Criminologist Diana Gordon once called it drug speak. That is the, the, the willing, the willing uh, discourse vigorously practiced from the White House and the US political class to legitimize anti-drug policy in, in its punitive logic. It is based on the, and I quote, demonization of the dealer transform into a, a vampire, a mule, a gang member, or even the fantasy of the narco-terrorist that we often hear in the media. And in some, the perception of the war on drugs is a kind of a holy crusade that would ultimately be designated as a national security threat 
in the 1980s. David McIntyre has argued that the national security strategy would come to, quote, dominate military and diplomatic activities and often the national political scene so perniciously that it now connects both homeland security and US geopolitics interests abroad. And this is where perhaps the Lopez Obrador government is hardly different from the process of militarization of the global South, uh, a trend that Jeff Halper has famously equated with the military occupation of Palestine. Isn't this the logical effect of the decades long process of what um, scholar uh, Maria Jose Rodriguez Rejas has called the de-Americanization of security in Latin America? Yes, but I think with one key difference, AMLO seems to have decided on a domestic politicization of the national security paradigm. And uh, by this, I, I, I want to uh, spend some time talking uh, on, on the way he refuses to call drug cartels a national security threat, the famous hugs, not bullets uh, policy. And, and he has been able to successfully set new terms into the binational anti-drug policy, at least in this course, right? As we saw from the Bicentennial Agreement. And while he has taken the country into a risky path of assigning unprecedented administrative roles to the armed forces, the control of the Mexican borders, the custom ports of entry, the Felipe Angeles, Mexico City airport, the distribution of the COVID vaccine and so on and on, I would not venture as far as to call this a full process of militarization of public life as some have denounced with alarm. AMLO's militarism, as others have observed, is also heavily directed at infrastructure duties, including the construction of the Mayan train, the interoceanic corridor, or even 2,700 branches of the Welfare Bank, a federal institution for the funding of social programs across the country. Now, this being said, it is true uh, that lately AMLO shocked public opinion by declaring that his infrastructure projects should move on on a fast track because they are also now a matter, he says, of national security. But here is exactly where I find the most fascinating moment of Mexico's current security paradigm. The concept of national security has been historically controlled by US hegemony. It is a political and cultural field on its own inscribed as the constitutive aspect of global geopolitics. Securitarism, or the operational logic of national security has thus become a structure that invades and transforms the domestic political life and practic of practically the entire world because it has be uh, been the mechanism to name contingent threats emerging in subsequent decades. Um, of course, communism, undocumented migration, terrorism, and of course, drug trafficking. And here, of course, is where I joined Don Paley's criticism to the idea of this conference, right? Solely devoted to organized crime because it seems to fall trap directly to the most hegemonic national security agenda, or at least the, the later stage of this agenda. In Mexico, the, the idea of national security has been internalized to such an extent that the bicameral commission of the Congress speaks of a culture of national security in which the very concept has become a comprehensive matrix of state policies that are now framed under a single governmentality. In this context, AMLO's appropriation of national security, and this is where I will finish my, my intervention, is twofold. Um, on one hand, he seems to uh, off, offer the reorientation of the militarization as a workforce for his in, uh, infrastructure projects. 
this, uh, at least publicly uh, renouncing uh, the, the open drug war that had been in the past nothing but a war against poor and vulnerable people. Although, as it had been suggested by Don and Daniel, uh, his armed forces lethality conducting anti-drug operation has in fact increased. And this is surely the most sensible caveat that we must keep in mind. And second, the transferring of the national security designation to those very projects, some of them aimed at the extractive industry, a sector previously linked to the aggressive militarization, the population of strategies um, of, of the Calderon and Peña Nieto governments. I am, of course, um, not approving of his policies with this uh, because, you know, of course, as we know, they're wide open to corruption and army cronism. But to simply dismiss AMLO's government as the blind empowerment of the armed forces, leading to some kind of codependency between civil and military power, I think is to remain on the critical surface of all these events. Perhaps our attention should also focus on the very nature of the global security paradigm and the way governments in the global south are disputing or should dispute US hegemony in the region by adapting proactively around the securitarian governmentality of their own design instead of simply reacting as subalterns of foreign wars as Colombian journalist Germán uh, uh, Castro Caicedo once called them. Um, and, and with this, I would just uh, simply add that the, the combination of the energy policy and the security policy of the Alu government and the, and the conflating of, of, of the two under the national security question for me is the key um, uh, moment of his presidency that we must uh, continue to examine. And, and of course, it's not exempt of contradictions and, 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 and difficulty to just simply understand uh, where it's going to, but, but I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Oswaldo. Um... I'm always left with these, um, in these sessions, well, in these conversations with people like you and Don and, and Luis Daniel, with more questions than answers. And so <laughs> we're gonna see how we work with that. I'm wondering if we can, yeah, if we all turn on our cameras then we can kind of speak to each other and I'm just gonna pose a couple of questions. Um, it, I wanna take up the, the, the issue around rhetoric and what you were talking about Oswaldo around um, which, which it, and this is, a, this is, all of you have kind of mentioned it. It's almost like there's been a play going on during various, um, in several administrations, no? Uh, Luis Daniel talked about, you know, showing criminals with guns and drugs. Um, Don spoke about, you know, who was working for whom, which I think is a, a question that we really need to be asking. And I've always thought about that, you know, when, when supposedly an organized criminal group was paying the government a certain amount of money, or was the government extorting that criminal group for that amount of money? I mean, who was in a position of power in those transactions? And then, um, and then just thinking about how he has changed, you know, this this drug speak that that we fall into, and how you know he says hugs not bullets. He goes and he visits El Chapo Guzman's mother and hugs her. But then he's he's running a campaign in Mexico that highly stigmatizes anybody who has any contact with the drug market. So it's in the drugs, there is no happy ending. I mean, that is if you use drugs, there's no happy ending in your life. And so it's these mixed message messages of not knowing what should we be worried about? What should we be paying attention to? Because there's too much going on all at once. And you don't know if you're watching a show 
and a facade that's being placed in front of you or whether you're being given clear information. If that wasn't even a question, I just want to, I want to <laughs> know if we can just like between all of us, and I don't know if it's possible from the, from the, the, the technical people, if we can all see each other on the screen and then if we can. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah. Uh, to, to take Because I would just on, open it up to, right. so we can speak, yeah. To take on your comment on, on the contradictions of, of, of his policy, what I would add to that is that um, is the national security narrative is, is, is contradiction itself, right? It's, it's built upon contradiction and contradiction. The idea is simply that the drug organizations are just so powerful that can challenge the state that they can somehow have a presence in over 100 countries and, and control the, the drug markets in the United States, exactly at the time where we're living one of the most heavily militarized moments in Mexican history is just in itself uh, ludicrous, right? And, and, and this is where exactly, I think, uh, a lot of the public debate on, on security falls trapped into, you know, because uh, they... For, uh, on one hand, we, we seem to accept blindfully the idea that cartels are out there really doing all this violence. But on the other hand, we want to put into question uh, the, the heavy military power and the, the territorial control they exert uh, unprecedented uh, in, 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 in the Mexican um, uh, land, you know, all over the place and in, in, in all the institutions. And so how do we reconcile that? Well, I think in order to do that, we need to get past just all the assumptions of the national security paradigm. And, and, and I think this is where uh, we need to simply cancel the idea you know, of talking about TCOs or cartels or extortion or the derecho de piso and, and all this vocabulary that seems to already imply a, a story in itself and, and some, some, some sort of an answer if we, if we want to really get past um, the, the problematic uh, use of all this language. Don, do you want to comment on this? Um, yeah, like I, I agree with with uh, what Osvaldo said, and I think thinking beyond getting past that language is also what language comes in. Um, how do we talk about what's happening? Because it's not like we can just eliminate um, the way that we're currently talking about what's taking place in Mexico. We, we need to be able to talk about exactly what is going on um, in drug war capitalism. I propose the idea of, of, for example, of talking about paramilitary groups instead of talking about drug cartels, which I think... Um, can help us as scholars, as activists, um, as journalists, um, understand how these groups have relationships with different parts of the state security apparatus. And that understanding is, is extremely complex, very hard to document. Um, I know, you know, as a young intern at the Globe and Mail in Canada, how the mainstream news works, mainstream newspapers, and it's basically reprinting police re press releases, right? And this happens all over the place. So state, state, right? Um, doing that extra work to figure out who's actually involved in this, what branches of the state security apparatus are participating with what non-state armed groups, paramilitary groups, is ex exceedingly dangerous work. Um, but it, I do think, for example, so moving towards talking about paramilitarism and, and, you know, when I researched paramilitarism in Colombia, I learned that that was actually a struggle by Colombian activists to use the word paramilitaries. The Colombian government didn't start talking about paramilitaries. It was through social struggle and through, um, folks going and doing advocacy with, with Congress people that they were able to move the discourse. And imagine if we had to talk about Colombia now without, without, being able to talk about paramilitary groups and because obviously the Colombian state is still trying to push 
in that direction. They talk about bakrim now, right? Bandas criminales, um, sort of very depoliticized um, language that also tells us constantly that there is a separation between state forces and these groups. So I think I would just add that, I guess, into the mix in terms of like, where do we go? Like narcofosas, for example, which was a very um, used word, I would say, um, as recently as a couple of years ago, I feel like that's kind of now fallen out of favor. Um, I started noticing it being used less after all those truckloads of human um, bodies were found in Jalisco that were stored by government officials illegally. Um, I'm talking about clandestine mass graves, right? Mm -hmm. And these kind of moves are really important in terms of um, destigmatization and in terms of potential to get out of the situation that we're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we're, we have witnessed, and, and you both touched on it, uh, this idea that anytime you just connect something with the word narco, then we can criminalize any of those activities. So narco-terrorism, narco-fosas, narco-menudistas, which are small-scale dealers um, within the Mexican criminal justice system, but really just means that you're possessing above a certain amount of uh, substances. And so there is this very intentional uh, purpose in in isolating and creating the other and making the other a very large group. Um, and so, so I think we, it's like, what do we use to fill in the terms to, to create that nuance that we know exists in our, in our, in our countries and in our, in our country and in our communities No, of like, it's, it's all much more mixed than, than, than one, than the government would like to make it seem. Luis Daniel, I don't know if you want to comment on this or if I should go on to my next, um, Yes, uh, just to add this to this sort of you know confusion or this narrative that of mixed messages that we have received from current president Lopez Obrador, which you you mentioned, and I'm quite agree. I would add the the ambiguity which we with which he has managed the whole uh, regularization of adult use of cannabis, even though his own country and his own party, sorry, have, has been the, the promoter of, of such, such laws that are now, I mean, it, it has been a slow process, but it's moving slowly, but it's moving, fortunately. And he has been quite ambiguous on, on that subject, not, not speaking quite openly for it, but not, you know, demonizing it openly, you know. But it's this ambiguity which leaves us in a kind of nowhere land, which we don't know where we're standing right now. And, but I, I think that, that Lopez Obrador has struck a chord in a very, in a very meaningful way with a subject that is, I'm seeing it right now here in Colombia, which is to attending the causes. And even though the, the, the cause that, that leaves, that leads somebody to commit an, an, an illegitimate or a, an illegal activity, you know, attacking the cause, not the not the consequence, sort of speaking. Mm -hmm. and it, 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 I, I have to admit it, I'm a fierce critic of Lopez Obrador in many ways, but there's some, he, ha, he has been talking about the same thing during, during a long, long time. And, and I think it's, it, it's about time to embrace that, that narrative and to embrace that, that debate and to analyze in, specifically talking about Lopez Obrador, how many of that has been talk and narrative and discourse and how, may, how actually it has go down to the, especially to the, to the poorest parts of Mexico, the, the, the parts where much 
people have to look to illegal activities to, as a means to survive. And how, how has it actually become a reality? Is it more of a, a discourse and, or a narrative or has it been a, a, a true effect behind that discourse? And actually that, I want to talk about something that Osvaldo said. Uh, this, this change that in, in the Merida Initiative, uh, the Bicentennial Agreement, if I'm not mistaken, that's, that's the name. I want to see if that's really uh, is going to be a change or it's, if it's going to be just a facade, just a, a change in the name, sort of like the National Guard, which was like the big answer of, of Lopez Obrador to fight organized crime. And it's just, it was just like a, a paint job on the same, uh, same security enterprise that was Policia Federal, but that functions in the very same way. I, I, I don't know if, if, if I'm being, being clear. Like what's real and what's narrative? That's that's the the main question that I ask right now with Lopez Obrador efforts in, in this subject. Yeah, um, and I think that's what most you know that's the, that is the big question because and he's very good at at, at terms. No, primero los pobres, first the poor. Hugs not it's not the poor. greatest. It's it's these it's these terms that he's able to throw out there. But that's the big question. Is it what would be the change? And so when we're thinking about this next, this next step in international cooperation, what how are you analyzing this, Oswaldo, as what is, I mean, they're gonna they're supposed to present it in January. What can we expect from this new document that will come out? What are the issues that are maybe being discussed? Does I mean, it, I think does that... it forecast a change? Well, the, the Bicentennial Agreement already foreshadows a lot of, uh, in, in, in language at least, and, and I share Daniel's uh, suspicion that, that this may remain just clear, clearly on the surface and not, and not in substance. Um, but, but there's a couple other uh, dimensions to this that I, that I would like to add. You know, as, as it is true that Lopez Obrador constantly talks about um, the, the causes of uh, drug trafficking being poverty and, and uh, social injustice and and, and so forth, um, uh, there is some, uh, there, there's a problem that I believe he, at, the, at least at the beginning of, of his campaign and in the first months of his presidency pointed at, which was of course uh, the security paradigm itself, right? And, mm -hmm. and the idea of the militarization, he, he kept announcing that the, you know, the, the, the military, uh, the, the armed forces would go back to the headquarters, you know, the, that he would demilitarize um, uh, the, the country, and of course, the opposite has happened. However, um, um, while, while saying this, you know, it, it comes to me, um, at least uh, as I revise all, all these uh, different events in the last three years, that perhaps he moved from, you know, from a very genuine desire, desire of demilitarizing the country to um, a more, I don't know how to uh, name it, but perhaps a, a more nuanced, uh, just to be generous, um, strategy of hijacking the national security agenda of the U.S. Um, but and, and by this, of course, I, I I don't want to say that I that I'm that I'm in favor of of, of this uh, new um, idea of the militarization, but but I do find that interesting uh, to a point. You know, the, for example, the idea of using the military, as I mentioned in my intervention, right to to move on to all these different projects, infrastructure projects, many of them connected to energy. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, following, of course, uh, Don Paley's uh, brilliant work uh, in, her, in her two books and, and other colleagues who have touched on this, 
energy is perhaps one of the main reasons of, of, uh, of a lot of the violence, right? There, there's a lot of the, um, of the links that have been established by journalists and academics and um, that prove that there's a correlation between the militarization and, and, and the extractive projects that went on, especially during uh, the Peña Nieto presidency. So uh, it seems to me that, uh, that in a very interesting way, you know, a, a lot of the, the new AMLO militarization process has to do with you know, uh, hijacking or, or rearranging the uh, energy map of Mexico, right? Uh, and, and, and I think this is why a, a, a conference just solely devoted to organized crime, I th in, in my view, falls short, right? Because uh, you can no longer think of uh, security issues just in isolation as if they were not connected to the broad uh, geopolitics in the in the region, especially when it comes to the extractive industry, um, and so we need to bring those two together, and and, and always think as as uh, Don mentioned, uh, in from a very interdisciplinary way. So, so so thinking the two processes, the way they're represented and discussed, and 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 when you then moved into you know exactly where the military is moving and where where is it that they're going, um, what projects are they favoring? You know, for example, the idea of the Ismo de Tehuantepec, the, the, the Interoceanic Corridor, the, the, ener the, ener the clean energy projects that are going on there. Uh, they also have to do with depopulation of, uh, of entire regions. Um, and, and, and it seems to me then that, and I venture this, of course, without any, any um, evidence yet, but, but it seems to me that, uh, that the, the process of militarization and energy are, are becoming a single paradigm of a new security agenda that Lopez Obrador is placing forward against some of the most recurrent transnational interests, but perhaps opening, of course, uh, um, to, you know, to other uh, possibilities of corruption and, and cronism, as I mentioned, but, but in any case, you know, opposing some, some form of, so, uh, of resistance from, from, you know, from this global South that used to be just passive, you know, uh, uh, against the, you know, the, the flow of, of this, um, of this agenda. Again, I'm not qualifying it. I'm not trying to put, you know, a moral value to it. I'm just simply thinking, you know, that, um, that together, uh, uh, the new militarization that moves around uh, these infrastructure projects, and then the move to call the infrastructure projects national security um, uh, uh, matters, um, then uh, seals, uh, you know, a new kind of like a governmentality where militarism and energy come hand in hand. Yeah, and I'm going to let you come in, Don. Don't worry. I mean, really quick, just the thing also about this possibility of I, I, um, the, about the possibility of of national security projects, of them being denominated national security projects, is also because then there is a there's a lack of a need of transparency if they aren't under that radar. And so I think it's important for us to at least say that you know it's also. But the question is, and this. Don, if you want to answer, you can, or you can just respond to what you were going to respond to is, you know, is he giving the project, these projects to the military because they're asking for it? Is he the one who is leading this or are they the ones who are asking for it? Who is, you know, who's leading this, this, um, this new hegemonic change that you're, that you're proposing that I think we are seeing in practice, Don? Well, um, yeah, so I wanted to just quickly respond to both uh, Luis Daniel and Don Oswaldo um, and just add to, to what they were mentioning. So I think in terms of uh, attending to the causes or attacking the root causes, I think one of the problems with the way that that discourse is often presented 
is that it responsibilizes individuals and especially really marginalized folks, um, folks who are actually most vulnerable to experiencing violence um, related to the war on drugs for their for the violence that they're experiencing. Um, I would be interested in a conversation about attending the root causes, and this touches just on what Oswaldo started saying. Attending the root causes, let's talk about uh, U.S. military relationships with Mexican military. Let's talk about U.S. training the Mexican Navy. Let's talk about um, let's talk about the the Mexican Army. Let's talk about the National Guard. Those, in my opinion, those are the root causes, and so the root cause discussion should go structural, but it tends to go individual and refocus the blame again for the drug war on the poorest people in Mexico, right? So I think, you know, I think we need to be very careful about adopting or engaging with uncritically with that idea of root causes. Um, and then I'm interested, I mean, I'm interested in Oswaldo's perspective on, on um, you know, the declaration of these mega projects. Uh, we actually don't know exactly what is going to be covered under um, the declaration that these will be parts of national security. You know, one thing of its reading, Serena's most recent, uh, the Mexican army's most recent uh, report of annual report, and the National Guard is actually a priority project of this government. So theoretically, uh, the bases that they're building, which are being challenged by communities, you know, from Coyoacan to the highlands of Chiapas, um, could also be forced through under this kind of decree. But I think one thing that I'd like to bring into that discussion, I think we'd be remiss to not mention is, you know, I can I can sort of see where Oswaldo's coming from in terms of this positioning um, of like a kind of an energy sovereignty um, position. Um, but there's also migration, right? There's also the fact that we now have soldiers and National Guard patrolling the North and South border and the whole country, like there's checkpoints all over the place. Um, and that does not seem to have, that seems like a concession um, that this government has been willing to make almost since the beginning of basically throwing non-Mexican migrants under the bus um, and you know, making it acceptable for them to be shot at, to be policed um, by state security forces within that kind of same discourse of national security. So I think I'd just like to put that on the table as well. I mean, this is my own hypothesis. I may be wrong, but I, I believe answering Sarah's question about uh, is the military asking for these roles or is AMLO giving to them? I believe it's the second one. That's my, my own, own point of view. Why I say this? Because there has been a lot of instances since he was since at least 15 years ago of him, uh, you know, showing some disregard or distrust towards traditional institutions. He, he has used several times that the government, this phrase that the government is uh, like a sick elephant that you have to move slowly. And I think he views the military as a way of cutting a, a few corners in the way of implementation of certain things. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, in favor of that, but uh, and the bureaucracy and the red tape is—it's an—it's it's an illness, illness that it's that affects every single government. And, and I believe that his his approach of giving the the military these roles allow him to operate more more freely without uh, a, a lot of supervision and avoiding a lot of processes on, on the way. I, I think it's a practical way of thing of him to operate. That's at least my hypothesis. 
And in in this in this idea of, of viewing the the this this whole situation as a whole, not just as a, uh, using the, those labels that we were talking about, I, I agree with, with Osvaldo, but I also think, thinking about attending the causes, it, it, it goes in the same way. You have to, to attend the causes, you have to act, in my opinion at least, as a whole state, not just depend on some security forces to, to act and then leave the, those communities that were affected or that, that, that were and um, um, I, I don't know, I govern intervenidas in, in a certain way. For instance, uh, what I was talking about here in Colombia, there's a lot of discourse and narrative talking about, yes, using the power of, of the force and the security forces to enforce the law, yes, but that has, that has to come hand in hand with more, uh, better access to, to education, to entrepreneurship to access to justice, to truth to the victims, to, um, you know, uh, giving way to infrastructure projects that can help these remote communities to access more easily to schools, to the highway system. That, that was, that's like what I think about when, when we talk about uh, attending the causes, to, to act as a whole, not, not just in addressing the, the problem as a whole, but viewing the solution as a whole, not just as a, as a matter of security, as a matter of illegality, as, it's just as a matter of a state acting to, to solve a problem. If I could just add, I think one of the root causes that we haven't mentioned is also prohibition, right? And especially in a conference like this, it, it needs to be mentioned. Um, and unfortunately, the current administration has proven unwilling to, to even legalize or decriminalize, uh, fully decriminalize marijuana, right? So I think that's another one to touch on. And, and if I could add uh, very quickly, just to um, to Don's um, uh, previous comment, which uh, with which I totally agree, um, the, the Lopez Obrador government by adopting this anti-immigrant stance on, on the on the, both the southern and the and the northern border, you know, which is not only heartbreaking but um, you know in violation of you know international law in many cases, um, it's also I, I think another aspect of this hijacking of the national security agenda that I'm talking about, right? In in the sense that. Um, even though it's in alignment with the, you know, what the Donald Trump and, and of course now the Joe Biden administration are, are pushing forward, it also seems to benefit and to and to you know expand his favor publicly. You know, as as we see, you know, he he continues to prove you know popular in, in most polls. Uh, to just today, he had he had a, a massive rally in. In, in the Socalo, uh, but also at the same time, of course, it allows him uh, to, to, I guess, uh, facilitate him to, him to com be complacent with the military's activities um, in, in, in those regions, right? Uh, the same goes for controlling uh, the, the customs ports of entry or uh, by administrating and, and, you know, and, and also taking the money from uh, the, the benefits of, of, the, of the Mexico City airport. Um, so it seems to me that it, it continues to be a win-win situation that has proven as an effective formula of, na of the national security paradigm all over the, the planet, right? I mean, it, it, this is what Jeff Halpern, this is why I, I keep coming back to his book called uh, The Global Palestine Paradigm, right? The idea of, you know, uh, implementing multi-checkpoints, you know, all over your country, you know, and, and, and militarize your own territory as a means of government. But, but he's doing it in order to advance his own uh, agenda, right? And one of them, of course, is totally contradictory 
to other geopolitical interests, the one on, on, on energy sovereignty. So again, you know, I'm not saying that um, any of this processes uh, are, are morally acceptable or, or, or even um, something that, that is desirable, but, uh, but it seems to me that, um, that if, we, if we think of them in, in, in conjunction you know, all together at the same time, we may see you know, uh, AMLO's, you know, uh, if you want sinister or, or effective at the same time, uh, security agenda that in, in, in some aspects uh, falls in line with the global trends and in others uh, brings forward um, the opportunity to build and to develop uh, um, important uh, um, central aspects of, of his presidency, like the one on uh, the commitment on energy sovereignty. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think we're we need to say, and and also obviously, you know, I work primarily on drug policy, so prohibition is definitely one of the pieces that um, we're working to overturn as a way of it forming part of a change. But as Don said we have not even been able to take one step without the government putting obstacles in the way. And in fact, it's been civil society that has really pushed any sort of change. Although there is discourse, uh, there's different discourse that happened depending in the, on the political moment from Olga Sanchez Cordero, Ricardo Monreal, or even from, from, the, from the president. But one of the things is that supposedly, and this is a question, like, will this happen? In March, 2024, there is supposed to be a demilitarization according to the law that was put in, according to the decreto that created uh, the National Guard. And so are we being naive in thinking that that might even happen? Um, because so much of the fights in, and so much of the fights on all of these projects have been in courts. And so that is also his means of Putting things under the national security umbrella allows him to go forward with those without being subjected to being um, demand um, sued by other actors. And so this is something where I think we need to be wondering, you know, is because there's a lot of I mean, he has high approval ratings. I voted for him in the last that is who we voted for, you know, and we had a lot of hopes. But there was also a lot of disappointment what will be some of these key moments in the future that we need to be thinking about in the next three years? And it's interesting that we're having this conversation exactly, you know, three years from when he took office. Um, and one would think, oh, we, we should be talking about, you know, long ago past, but these three years have felt almost like a decade in all of the, the changes that have happened and, and maybe the consolidation of some of these things that, that you all are touching on of, you know, how are they protecting extractive industries? And is that then an incorporation between the military and private sector, or are you giving more power to the private sector? And if you do it all under the umbrella of national security, we actually might never know. And so what, what, is, what is the scenario that we might see playing out around some of these um, ever-changing dynamics that, that you all have been picking up on throughout your conversations? Because I know we have about five minutes left, so I feel like we could kind of end in that forward thinking. Anyone who wants to pick up can or sure. I would um I just draw attention to a new program announced today between the US and Mexico. It's called Sembrando Oportunidades, and it's supposed to be an extension of um one of the hallmark uh programs of the Lopez Obrador administration, Sembrando Vida. Um and the military's role in that, right? So we didn't see anything about the military's role. It's rarely talked about um, their role in Sembrando Vida, but I think we should pay attention to um, how 
I just saw a note that says we have 20 minutes. So I'm going to take a bit longer than I was going to do like a 30 second wrap up, but I guess I mean, it's really as long as you guys feel like you can be here because they had told me an hour. But now that we have more time, we can have they just, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, Anyways, I think um, there has been since the Peña Nieto administration an increased uh, participation by the Mexican military in um, international peacekeeping uh, quote unquote, peacekeeping uh, mission. So currently there's um, Mexican military officials uh, in numerous countries in Africa, for example. Um, and so I think for me, that would be one thing to look at. Uh, I, you know, Fernando Escalante Gonzalo has an excellent uh, column uh, at the beginning of this year in Nexos, where he he basically says there's there's no turning back from this in terms of um, the military's increased participation in civilian life and these guaranteed revenues that they're getting, right? Like we're being told now that the Corredor Transismico and the Tren Maya is going to be administered by long-term by the army for the purpose of guaranteeing their pension funds, right? So there's it's, this is a long-term plan. Um, it's very interesting and I'm, I'd be very interested to hear what Oswaldo and, and Luis Daniel and you have, have thought about this, Sarah, of sort of using the military uh, in the discourse as a way to um, protect sort of, it's a, it's a kind of nationalization where the army is the only institution within Mexico that can guarantee that these, the Tren Maya, the Aeropuerto Santa Lucia, uh, the Corredor Transismico will stay in state hands is by giving it to the military. Um, I think that's an extremely risky, extremely dangerous um, idea. And it's something to me that seems very permanent, right? You're talking about this is going to pay their pensions, right? So the, the, this is not thinking about like a three-year plan. This is thinking about 30 years in the future when the soldiers who are coming in today are starting to retire. Um, and I, so I think paying attention to to where soldiers are deployed. For example, if Mexican soldiers are, are no longer to be deployed to this extent within Mexico, will they begin participating in different uh, contexts in Central America or in so-called peacekeeping missions overseas? I would say that's something to pay attention to. Mm, I, I would I would add to, to Don's point, um, talking about the, this, the subject uh, of of how in, in the discourse he he's using the 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 militarization as a way of protecting some subjects. I would add that uh, Lopez Obrador has been a quite successful politician in a way, thanks to his interpretation and his analysis of 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 the public feeling, and that comes in, in the way of how 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 is the is the people looking or viewing a certain thing that, that is going on in the country. And I would add to, to this that uh, even though in Mexico, as well as in pretty much the whole world, the public institutions are going through a crisis, a confidence crisis, a trust crisis. In Mexico, the one of the few institutions that carry on having a relatively stable level of trust among the citizens and among the people in general is, are the, the armed forces, uh, which I, I also believe that plays a part in, in Lopez Obrador using them as, as a way of shielding certain projects or cer certain ideas, certain approaches, certain policies, using the military to in, as a deterrent of, of, uh, of avoiding some criticism to, uh, about people. And to just to close, I, I I would like to 
what, what I'm really interested in seeing in, in the coming uh, years are the, the main results of these social programs in which Lopez Obrador has invested quite a lot of his political capital and discourse, especially this, this sort of, uh, of programs that are, are, were actually aimed at, among other things, to reducing the, the probability of vulnerable populations to going into criminal enterprises. And right now, it's all hypothesis. We don't have the results. The results of, about how many people have improved their conditions of living through Sembrando Vida, through all these um, scholarships and the, this whole branch of, of social programs that Lopez Obrador implemented to see if it was all a, a really well-managed discourse that didn't actually materialize or if we, if what I'm most interesting, interested about in the coming years. Um, should, should I respond? Yeah, please. Okay. please. Um, well, uh, thinking um, uh, along the lines of uh, Don's uh, last intervention, I I was thinking of how, uh, you know, under, under neoliberal governance, the army was traditionally instrumentalized for, you know, the population for, for facilitating uh, transnational extractive industries for um, terrorizing, of course, entire communities and, and for, um, you know, opening up. And, and I think I'm, I'm using one of Dawn's uh, keywords in, in her book, you know, op opening up uh, markets, you know, in, in, in the global South. Um, and, and, you know, of course, this is very temporary and very risky, as, as Dawn said, but, uh, but, you know, the Lopez Obrador government seems to have implemented a reversal of this traditional use of, of the army, right? In, in the sense that, um, that it has become a somewhat of a, of a public um, branch of, you know, of, uh, institutional growth, you know, and, 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 and for, of course, administering some of the uh, most important infrastructure projects. This being said, of course, and I share uh, completely Don's preoccupation with the fact that this, of course, is long-term and, and, and there is no uh, end in sight, even though it's, of course, um, uh, uh, projected in, in the Constitution of the National Guard that by 2024, right, the uh, the army would be fully out of uh, security tasks, and uh, and that the, the National Guard itself would have become some form of a civil um, uh, security um, 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 armed forces, you know. But 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 in the end, as we're seeing, it just takes the consensus in Congress. To you know, to change or to postpone those dates, right? And 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 I don't think um, we have seen uh, differently, especially from the tra transition, the, the official transition of the National Guard to back to Sedena, right? Back to the to uh, to the army uh, leadership. Um, of course, it never left army <laughs> leadership, but it just simply became officially now completely fully under the command of of, of the military. Um, and you know, of course, uh, for as much as this this worries me and and and, and it keeps me um, at bay, you know, with uh, with uh, understanding the the fine, the ultimate direction of, of Lopez over our policies, it, it seems to me that there are very few other options, alternatives in 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 the neoliberal the neoliberal era that they were facing, right? Um, if, if if we if Lopez Obrador had entertained the um, you know the total dismantling of of military power in the first years, even first months. Of his um, presidency, I doubt that that uh, you know uh, a lot of his projects would have survived. Perhaps he, even his 
presidency would have entered some form of crisis. Um, and by administering, by, by shifting the roles of, of, the, uh, of the military, as we have seen, uh, the, uh, it, it seems to me that he's opting out for, uh, for some form of uh, you know, middle ground in which you know, he is accepting some of the security roles of, of, of the military, and especially the, the ones we mentioned on, on, my, on, uh, on the anti-migrant policy that, that is so disheartening. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it comes also as you know, as as a force that that is trustworthy for for you know uh, undertaking these massive projects that that require um, not only the expertise, of course, but the viability of of a state institution branch that can actually carry it through, right? As opposed to you know outsourcing it to the private sector, which would be would take you back to the to the you know the the original logic of of neoliberal governance. So um, I'm, I'm not saying that with this that he's evading neoliberalism at any of any sort. I'm, I'm thinking simply like, and, and I and I think I like that word for now, hijacking it. It seems to me like a like an interesting way of naming it because it seems to me that he's you know taking um, the the leadership over them you know to to move them in accordance to his own project. So so th this goes also back to the question that you were posing before. In the sense that uh, it's, I don't think it's the military calling the shots, but but it's actually a, a fully uh, uh, authoritarian and, and in control presidency that is uh, you know accepting its contradictions and it's moving forward um, with the main focuses that that it's choosing. And and for me, um, one of them, of course, is, is um, energy and, and energy reform. And you know, to this last point, it's just simply it's fascinating how this whole panel. You know that it's within a conference of organized crime has fallen so far away from from the idea of, of organized crime, and I think that's a sign of, of you know, uh, of nuance and and, and and a good debate. You know, because I think we we definitely need to move way past the idea that the main concern in Mexico is somehow you know um, a bunch of armed groups that uh, they call themselves Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación uh, because they're you know worrying about uh, the how to take fentanyl to to the U.S. Mexico border. I think there's Far more than that, and 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 that we need to um, uh, open up that discussion, right? Um, and so, finally, just to 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 go back to to the expectations that you're uh, setting forward to, for 2024, I, I don't I, I do not uh, anticipate that the military will be out of, of course, uh, a public life, um, but I I do hope for uh, not only just a reduction of violence, but a, a, a a gradual reconfiguration of, of the security paradigm itself, right? And, and, and perhaps um, uh, we, uh, we have seen a little bit of that in some of the decisions that have been made uh, early in the presidency, namely, for example, the refusal to, uh, to uh, detain El Chapo's son to prevent you know, the, the killing of people in Culiacán. I think that was, that was the right call. Um, and, and perhaps uh, the question of, of some of the most conflicted areas the one, for example, in, in Michoacan, and, and especially in the town of Aguililla, you know, where a lot of scholars are, are, are uh, arguing that, you know, that narcos are in control or the narcos have suspended the sovereignty of the state. Uh, what we're seeing is some, some sort of at least hesitance uh, in, the, in the necro uh, politics of the previous governments, right? And, and, and that for me, if not an answer, at least it's some form of hope, right? That the fact that this government refuses to kill um, as a form of governing or as a form of security policy, uh, it's 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 somewhat of a of a positive sign. Uh, again, I'm not saying that this is not happening anymore because there are clear signs that it is happening. 
but in public discourse, or at least in public policy and in Lopez Obrador's mind, it's not something that is desirable. So I, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, perhaps, you know, we're, we're heading into, into that difficult balance of allowing the military so much power and liberty that, you know, they conduct these raids and these anti-drug policies, perhaps on their own, you know, the, the Culiacan uh, situation seems to have uh, been uh, conducted without the president's knowledge, which is also very worrisome. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, the president thinking that, you know, the, the, the way to move forward is way beyond uh, the kingpin strategy and, and just the idea of, uh, of the war against drugs altogether. Yeah, I mean, these are big questions that we're kind of bringing up. Um, and I'm thinking about, are there even incentives to change the security paradigm? I mean, is, have we even seen, a sh is this a real shift? No, um, I'm not sure that he's the, the one who's calling all of the shots. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. I think that there's, there's, it's, there is a different kind of relationship there. And as oftentimes when you enter power, maybe you don't know all of the dynamics that you're going to be coming up against when that happens to you. And one of the things that I want to, when we think about the future, um, and then I don't, Don, I'm not sure if you want to respond to some of the, the comments that were made, and then we'll wrap up, is, you know, how are we going to be thinking about what is what happened with Cienfuegos? Was that a presidential pardon without it being called a presidential pardon? Can we envision a world in Mexico where there is this interconnectedness between state and folks who are engaged in illegal economies and also engaged in legal economies being able to have pardons offered to them in exchange for other for letting go of certain activities in exchange for no longer producing fentanyl and only producing legal substances that have now been regulated by the state. It's that because I am an optimist at heart. And so one wants to think that with some policy changes, we could have that clandestine activities no longer be that. And that there could be a, it could be much more clear because the confusion that has been around all of these um, actions. And anytime you hear about any any interaction between the state and a community or the state and a group, they're thriving on the confusion that's generated around that. Um, and so, it's one of these things of when we think about the future, how you know whether presidential pardons will be part of that future as a means of recognizing these, you know, and I appreciate the questioning of this conference because that's why I wanted to have this panel because I wanted to have a panel that was questioning how the, the, the basis of this conference. Um, and so I'm really pleased with the conversation we've had because it leaves us with, um, yeah, much more nuanced framework to really think about this. And probably we could keep going on. I have other things that could go on, but, you know, whether what is really at the forefront of for AMLO? Is it his social programs or is it these infrastructure programs? Where is he seeing the power? He wants to be loved. And so that's the social programs, but he has an idea and an ideology that he's pushing and that's the infrastructure project. So I feel like even within himself, there's these this duality that's playing out, that is playing out in the country as a whole. Um, so I don't know if anyone wants to have a last comment and I would just take us I would away. just caution I would just caution against the idea that the army is transitioning into this other sphere of activities. Um, they're they're expanding into another sphere of activities while maintaining 
um, you know, this month is the record of soldiers patrolling the streets, mm-hmm. right? More than 80,000. So it's, it's, it's actually increasing the national security paradigm of war on drugs um, and expanding. Um, so I think that is extremely worrying. Those, those and, and things 80, happening 80,000 only once. Serena, right? 80,000, yeah. I think it's only Serena. We're not counting Marinos or, or Guardia Nacional, which is even, you know, it doubles up that figure, right? I share that the preoccupation done completely. Yeah, and I think it's something that we need to think about. I mean, a lot of us on, there are certain indicios, there are certain hints that maybe there are things that, you know, that aren't, that have not yet become state policy, but where, you know, the truth commission on the dirty war in Mexico. Okay, we can celebrate that that's happening. That's been pushed for by victims. Um, and that's what's hard. It's hard to know when things are being done because there's a political will to open the, the country to have this, this kind of conversation about truth and justice and reparations and, and, um, and reconciliation. And then when is it something that is only happening because you're pushed against and you, cause you can no longer say no, because the dirty war was a long time ago, but all of this continues to happen. So have we really had that transition that we would, we would need to, is there a politician that can come at the future who might hold that space or would it, you know, what will be um, kind of this future of the left and, and, and what comes out when there is greater transparency on what's on what's going on. Um, I know we only have one minute left. And so I just want to say, I just want to thank you for a, a lovely conversation on this Wednesday night. And by lovely, I mean, terrorizing terrific because we don't know what's going to happen. And I think that, um, there are a lot of people who are suffering and that's what's mm-hmm. the hardest part because mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, pain that is not being addressed in this mm-hmm. country. And every day, you know, and, and you, I feel like it's 91 people are killed on a daily basis. You know, there are several women that are killed every day on a daily basis. So it's, we are living in a, we've normalized these violence levels um, and so it's no longer, oh, there's, there were more homicides this year than last year. That's, it keeps happening and we don't, we're not questioning why or how, or how do we shift that? Um, and so I want to thank you for, for having that conversation. And I hope that within the conference, maybe they can also look at how they're framing this conversation, this global conversation and how they can be, how we can all who, all of those who are participating be a bit more um, uh, intentional in how we're, we're framing it and a bit more uh, critical of how we think about these topics. So um, thank you, the three of you, for, for joining at this hour. And Thanks so much, forward. Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank Sarah. Thank you all. Thank you for everything. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, 
and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.